And welcome to the Plant a Trillion Tree podcast. I'm Eva Monheim. And I'm Hal Rosner. We're both certified arborists, credentialed by the International Society of Arboriculture. The purpose of our podcast is to encourage tree planting and proper tree care for our urban forest, which includes neighborhoods, parks, and other open space. We'll also cover the importance of the already existing tree cover and the benefits. So welcome, everybody. Thanks for joining us. This podcast is being recorded on January 29th, 2021. Richard McCoy has over 30 years experience in the green industry. He is the visionary behind Richard A. McCoy Horticultural Services Incorporated, founded in 1995. Since transitioning from conventional to organic landscape methods in 2005, McCoy Horticultural has been offering environmentally and sustainably responsible landscape design, installations, maintenance, green infrastructure, and organic lawn care. His work at Stony Wood Garden, a 3.5-acre private woodland garden in Princeton, New Jersey, has been recognized by the Smithsonian Institute's Archive of American Gardens. Richard is an advisor and practitioner council member for the Organic Landscape Association, and Richard is a member of the Rutgers Organic Land Care Working Group. He holds a certificate of organic land care through their program. McCoy and company are members of the Association of New Jersey Environmental Commissions and registered with the New Jersey Sustainable Business Registry. Richard is co-contributor to Rutgers Organic Land Care Best Management Practices Manual and previously contributed to Organic Gardens Today magazine. Currently, he adds content for Ecology Matters, the McCoy Horticultural blog. Welcome to the Plant a Trillion Trees podcast, Richard. We're really happy to have you here today. And we would love to uh, hear a little bit more about your connection with the green industry. In the introduction, we talked about all your accolades and your certifications for organic use in in the landscape. We'd love to find out how you got to that decision-making process and uh, your passion for trees. Uh, mm-hmm. which is one of the reasons why we wanted you to come on our show today. And if you can give us a little bit about your background. Yeah, sure, sure. So again, thanks for having me on. I, I, I appreciate and uh, I appreciate the opportunity. So I started in the green industry back in around 1990, uh, working for an arborist, uh, doing uh, applications and as a climber. Did that for a couple of years. Then I went to work for an estate uh, landscape company, which... Both places were fantastic because I learned a lot in both of those places about trees and, and, you know, ornamentals and perennials. And we did things conventionally, which getting, I'll get back to the, to the arboriculture as I move on towards my, our transition to organics, how that makes, how that sort of plays in. Um, so I worked, I, you know, that was about eight, eight years, give or take for the, for the two together. And in 95, I started my company, uh, Richard McCoy Horticultural Services. And we started that company as a conventional company, um, you know, spraying, doing tr- traditional lawn work, um, you know, spraying synthetics the way everybody 
everybody manages properties back in the 90s. Fast forward to, to 2005. And at that point, I had noticed things weren't really working the way they should. Um, I had noticed working for my former employer that we were having trouble managing the landscapes. Um, colors weren't vibrant. Plants weren't healthy. We were replacing things a lot. And it, it was around that time, around 2005, when I started. There were some products coming on the market. Uh, one that I call to mind exactly was, it was called uh, PHC. Uh, it was plant healthcare or something or other. I can't remember exactly what it was, but it had, it was a fertilizer. It was a synthetic fertilizer, but it had a bacterial component to it. And we started using that on our soil. And once we started doing that, and along with the coaching of my, one of my mentors, um, with some reluctance, you know, back in 2005, 2000-ish, um, a lot of people weren't really savvy to organics. And the conventional thought was it didn't work and it was too expensive, you know, so at that point I wasn't going to try it. But then again, like I noticed some of the, back, the we were adding bacteria and some biology to the soil. And at that point, I, I, I knew something was happening. In my prior work, I, I'd always add compost because, well, you add compost. Why do you add compost? Well, because it's good for the soil. What does it do? I don't know. You add compost. <laughs> so, you know, then we started to realize that the soil is alive. There's biology in the soil. The root systems feed off of that biology. Also, you know, the exudates and the biology are talking and those nutrients are going back and forth. Um, I took a course, a couple of classes from Milford, Connecticut. Uh, that really opened my eyes. And when I did that, and you start looking at the soil biology, the life under an electron microscope, and you see the, the fungi that are catching the nematodes and the, the protozoas that are eating the, the bacteria. And then the, you know, the protozoas excreting, you know, nitrogen and nutrients into the soil and all that, all that good stuff. And then that just sort of flipped my world on its end. And I haven't looked any, any other way other than organic and ecologically since then. I just quickly want to share, uh, Richard, I'm in the same camp with you. I, I took the, uh, NOFA program. I think it was, uh, 2015, mm -hmm. uh, big snowstorm up there that, that week and, uh, uh, got the accreditation. And I wish I could say that I had, I've swung a hundred percent towards organics. I wish I could, but with spotted lanternfly and emerald ash borer, uh, you know, I have to uh, dip into the uh, old school protocols once in a while. Right, right. Yeah, so the spotter lanternfly, I guess, is tricky. We, fortunately, where we're at, we don't have that issue at the moment. Um, and as far as the AB goes, when you start to, when you start to, you know, and you're taking NOFA class, you realize that there are certain things you can treat, certain things make sense to treat, yeah. and some things you just let go because, well, there's better things to replace it with. And, you know, so the way we look at, at treating, it, you know, for NOFA or our Rutgers program, when you treat something with a synthetic, it would be called a rescue treatment. Okay. Um, right. So we would take, if you had a large, let's say you had a, a large beach that had twin line, uh, twin line bore, and there was a large focal point on the property. It did a lot for the architecture. You have a conversation with the client, say, the only way we're going to treat this to save this treat is with the synthetic. And you do your, you know, you do your systemic treatments. And that's really the only time we would, we would sort of dive into that synthetic pesticide uh, realm is if something like that happened. Otherwise, you know, we're, we're practicing good cultural practices, using native plants, um, things like things of that nature so that you don't have to use and don't want to use chemicals because you want those beneficials there to balance your ecology. Right. Yeah. I, I wanted to say back in 2003, I had been working for a PR agency 
and one of our clients had uh, soil soup. I'm not sure if you've ever heard of soil soup, but it was out from the West Coast out, and I didn't think it was in Washington, in Bothell, Washington, in that area. And uh, it was a way, they were way ahead of their time creating a soup or a water tea. from compost. So oh, it, more like a compost it turned tea, out yeah. to be a compost tea, but there was no name for it yet at the time. So we actually came up with the name compost tea. And so this whole process that we went through, you know, people will say, it doesn't work, it doesn't work. But what we did discover when we send it out to all these different universities to trial it, that what it did when you sprayed it on your garden and on your lawn and on your plants, they became more resistant to insects and disease because of the biome that it created on the surface of the leaves and on the surface of the blades of grass, if you will. And uh, people didn't believe it until the study started coming out. And then uh, people started making compost tea by the batches. What you really realized was that the compost tea had to be brewed and then used right away. It couldn't sit, otherwise you'd kill those microorganisms. And so there, that, the whole thing had to go through a process. But I remember that very vividly that there was a lot of resistance because we were we were also representing another company that was an organic, um, which is well known right now. And um, it, it takes a little bit of getting used to because the results aren't there right away. It's over time and it's over time that you develop that wonderful soil for your clients. As you were talking, Rodell Institute has done it too, where you mm -hmm. see uh, them creating a uh, you know, cornfield that is more resilient than the one that's fertilized by using compost. It really takes people who are interested in investing and creating a healthier environment that we have to say kudos to someone like you for taking that upon yourself to do before the whole wagon load of people followed you. All right. All right. Um, well, yeah, I mean, I know, I know Elaine Ingham, Dr. Elaine Ingham did a lot of work at Rodale. Um, and she's been instrumental with, with working with NOFA and, and the early training with NOFA. I know that. I, unfortunately, unfortunately, didn't get a chance to train with her, but um, I've, I've watched her videos and seminars. And, yeah, so much. Yeah, uh, I mean, I could sit there and watch it for days. She's amazing. Yeah, I think all you need is an hour with Elaine and an hour with uh, Chip Osborne. And at least yeah, me, well, it's like I approached the altar. I'm, I was a convert. Yep. Yep. Chip, Chip is great. Um, Chip and I worked together. Our, you know, he, he, he founded the OLA, the Organic Landscape Association. And, uh, I'm also an advisor on there. So yeah, Chip, Chip is great. Um, I haven't had a chance to speak with him in a while, but we're, we're working on some things hopefully for this spring with the OLA. Um, hopefully we can move that forward. Yep. So how did that transition into your tree passion and your, um, I want to say enthusiasm for making sure that trees are planted properly? That's, that's a good one. So I just basically love the environment, love trees, always have. And one thing, again, once you start to look at things differently, and instead of, you know, as Chip would say, using a, a, a bag, box, or bottle to solve a problem, you know, you, you find the reason why those trees or shrubs are having that problem, and then you fix that problem. And with trees in particular, and this is, this is where, where we, there was a major disconnect, I think, between the nursery industry and the landscape industry is is that 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 space between when that tree's in a nursery field 
and it gets to the landscape contractor and they have to plant it and then the care after. So the care after, let's start with that. We spend so much time doing root collar excavations with an air spade, uh, removing girdling roots, um, you know, doing radial trenching and things like that with our air spade that, that benefit these trees because the 90%, 95% of the trees have either, if not planted improperly too deeply, have been over mulched too deeply. And that's, you know, that's a huge, huge issue in our industry, um, whether it's arboriculture or, or whether it's, whether it's landscape. So that, and that, that sort of in, is in part my passion of, of trying to make trees more healthy is trying to care for them after that fact and, and, and alleviate those issues that, that have happened either in the nursery or by a proper culture. Can you quickly walk us through it? Uh, I'm fascinated by how people like yourselves work around, you get that two and a half to three inch diameter B and B off, you know, offloaded. How do you instruct your staff in terms of the sequencing of, of planting that tree? Right. So again, nine times out of 10, we get a tree, whether it's B and B or, or a container plant. Um, most times they're also too deep. So we have to, we do, we call it cursory root collar excavation. Every tree, every, every container we get, we pull the soil off to find the root collar flare. Um, whether it's a, whether it's the flare of a tree or, you know, a, um, the crown, let's say there's a crown, multiple stems of a, of a shrub. Um, and we find that planting height and then we're able to install it at the proper depth. Um, but it, it, like I said, it's, it's 95% of the trees and shrubs that we plant and we find that with. Um, and it's almost like a holiday when we find one that we don't have to root collar. But I mean, if somebody's going to a nursery, if, if, if you have homeowners who are listening, it's, it's difficult to tell from that root ball what you're looking at. One little, one little clue is that, is that if you see the top of the root ball with the burlap is mounded, that's a pretty good indicator that that root ball is too deep. Whereas if you find one that's, you know, flat, and, you know, hard, still hard to tell with the burlap on it, but if you find it's more flat than it is mounted, you have a pretty good shot at having a tree that was dug properly where that soil was removed at the nursery before the burlap was enclosed on top of the encaged before the, before it was all closed up. I think, or um, taking a look at how the, the 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 actual trunk is entering the soil, mm-hmm. whether it's straight like a telephone pole, yep. or whether it has a slight triangular shape towards the base before right. it hits the soil line, then you can yeah. then you can pretty much tell. How do we change the industry? How I, you know I've heard <laughs> I've I, I've heard landscapers tell me, well, the reason why they plant them wrong was to guarantee themselves work. And I thought to myself, you don't belong in this industry. You do not belong in this industry. Yeah, uh, that's that that's one of the one of the things I do in one of my talk. I talk about the devaluation of our industry, and mm-hmm. you know how how we're an industry of commodity because we can only be as good as that lowest common denominator, and. What I try to, I do, you know, not only speaking to you and doing other, other webinars and things like that, but before COVID, I was always speaking with the NJNLA or NJLCA to their, to their membership about the things that, that I see and how they can fix that and how it benefits them when they don't have to go back. Right. I mean, we guarantee our trees for three years because we pay attention to where they're planted. We pay attention to the culture of the tree, where that tree's planted. And like I said, we do that cursory root collar excavation to make sure it's at the right depth. And when you do that, your trees don't die. So why would you want to go back and do something over again? Because then you're, you know, that's a waste of money. You're losing, you're losing profit. So 
from that standpoint, I'd rather go on a property and plant three trees separately, right? And get the profit from planting those three trees instead of going back and replanting one tree three times, you know? Um, and, and why that is and how we, how we bridge that gap between the nursery and the landscape and that lowest common denominator of the landscape contractor, the, you know, the truck in the truck that's just going and throwing a tree in the ground. And if you're lucky, he's dug a hole half deep is the way it should be. I, I don't know how we do that. A lot of it is just going to be contractors that know how to do the right thing out there educating their clients and them also in turn speaking up when, you know, when they see something that's not right, educating other contractors about how it's done properly and, and the benefits of doing it properly. Instead of, instead of having to go back and replace trees multiple times that have been planted wrong. Or some type of licensing like New Jersey has where, you know, people have to have training before they run their business. I mean, it, it's a no brainer. Yeah. Yeah. I know there, there's, there's been, there, there's been talk for a while about a landscape. New Jersey doesn't necessarily have a landscape license. Um, they have a home improvement contractor license that you have to have if you own a landscape business, but there's nothing. I mean, there are, there are, there are accreditations and certificates and things like that you can get, but there's nothing, there's no state, like the state of New Jersey landscape license. There's, there's no such, there is no such thing. They don't have the same thing that the tree people have with, um, right. tree care, right. which took right. a lot to get as Bob Wells was telling us mm -hmm. when we had him on our podcast. Right. Right. It does seem like New Jersey is, uh, ahead of the pack in terms of, uh, they're professional organizations. I'm, I'm, I'm envious. Yeah, yeah. The NJNLA and NJLCA, they do, they do a great job, and they've come a long way in the past couple of years to, to make them aware, to make contractors aware of, you know, the more proper way to do things. I, for one, I was not a huge fan of landscape industries. To me, I, when I started my business, I went, and as I started to get away from the conventional side and moving more towards organic, to me, they just seemed like it was, you know, it was snow plowing, it was pavers. And, you know, whatever plant material you throw in the ground, it, it is what it is. And over the past couple of years, both of those associations have really come a long way in trying to educate their members of both um, NJ, NJ, NJLCA and NJNLA. Um, they've gone a long way to educate their members on the proper, you know, proper way to do things. So, you know, it's changing, but it's the, you know, it's the battleship theory. It takes, it takes a long time to turn a battleship. And this is a big industry. Ship around, yes. Yeah. Big industry and a lot of things have to change. And I, the biggest, again, the biggest problem I think is, is that lowest common denominator and homeowners not realizing the value of a tree that's planted for a hundred dollars and that other tree that's planted for four hundred dollars and the value that's worth that four hundred dollars as opposed to the one hundred dollar tree planted mm -hmm. three times. So there, there's, there's some issues that have to be overcome. But, you know, again, like you mentioned, both, in, both associations are doing a great job to, to bring folks up to speed. I had a, um, a former student who um, had me over for lunch to her house. And she said to me, oh, while you're here, can you look at my trees? You know, I just had them put in. I got such a great deal. And I said, oh, deals always are trouble to me. <laughs> right. So, um, you know, at the end of the season, it's one thing if they're trying, but they want to get, they don't want to have anything sitting in their yard. But you have to make sure you know who's putting them in. So I went over and I said, get me a shot. And I was dressed up that day. So I said, just get me a shovel. Yeah, I don't care. I'm dressed up. So I get the shovel and I'm digging around the tree. And I said, just as I suspected, just as I suspected, the handles of the metal basketers, I find, you know, excavate to them. And then the tie around the the trunk of the tree with the mulch covering it. So the plastic straps were still left on. 
the cage itself was on. And of course the burlap was left on. And I said, mm -hmm. you, you get what you pay for. This is not a bargain. I said, you're going to have to excavate these. And she was a horticulture student. I said, you're going to have to excavate these. She goes, oh my gosh, do I really have to do it? I go, yeah, if you want them to survive. Because <laughs> mm -hmm. they were already starting to wane a little bit, you know? Yeah, I mean, just to, just to touch on our planting uh, practices again. I mean, we take, in our air excavation work, I have seen cages that have girdled roots, um, that have girdled trunks. So, you know, you take that extra step to, to do it right the first time. And, you know, that, that tree is going to be there for their, you know, for somebody's grandchildren to get some shade under someday. Yeah. Uh, quickly, two techniques. Uh, there's a handful of young arborists at, at our tree company that are taking the exam. So using ISA's uh, arborist study guide, their recommendation is basket comes off completely and burlap comes off completely. They know they'd okay. come around to that. I, but over the years, the Two things I've heard, one from uh, Dr. Hendrickson on those heavily root-bound containers is, he said, take a sawzall, cut all that circuitous root off, and just understand the tree's going to be stressed for a year. There's no other way to handle it. And then the other technique, and I can't uh, attribute it, it was at a presentation years ago with bald and burlap, is kind of in a similar vein is, if it's a crummy ball that's falling apart, revert it back to a bare root on planting day. You know, adequate. That's a question I get a lot when I tell folks that you're taking the cages off. And, you know, with, with that, you, you start to learn when you work with certain nurseries what kind of plant material you're getting and where those trees are coming from. And you can sort of, as you start to pull that, take that root ball apart, you can tell what kind of root ball and how, whether it's a compacted clay soil and that root ball is going to hold together. Um, and this work is typically not done away from the hole. It's done right where the hole, right where the tree is going to be planted. <laughs> yeah. And you're not moving it around the site. You're doing all that pre-planting work, taking the cages off and whatnot, and then putting in the hole immediately following that. So the process for us is, again, you know, we do our cursory root collar, then we cut the bottom of the cage off. Then we take the bottom of the burlap off. We can get it in the hole, firm it up a little bit. Then once the tree is somewhat stabilized, then you cut down vertically the cage and the burlap, and you can pull it off. I love it. Right? So that way, the root ball is still sort of intact. Um, the cage is still on it to give it some support. And if it does fall apart, you're exactly right. I mean, you just you plant things bare root, so just water the heck out of it and, you know, move it around. Make sure there's no air bubbles like you're planting a bare root plant. And, you know, most of the time, it's fine. Right. You know? Yeah. Right. You, you need to do a YouTube on that one, that one Richard. Yeah. Technique. I mean, we have we do have a YouTube channel. We just started a couple of uh, webinar interviews and things like that. It's nothing. We don't have any any techniques on up on there yet. So, but we will. You know, years ago they didn't have galvanized steel as a basket. It was regular iron. That iron broke down within that year from rusting. And one of the things that forced them to do galvanized was that. Too many people had too much left over and their ball would break in the nursery uh, because the cage rusted over the wintertime. Right. They went to galvanized and people thinking that it's okay to plant in galvanized steel. It's, it's not okay. It's, right. it's not normal for a tree to live in a cage. And I, and I really think that that's, that's the misnomer from years ago. Even years ago, people used to take that iron cage off before they put it in a hole. 
Well, that that and the treated burlap also, right? So you have a treated and non-treated burlap. So that's the issue. Also. And of course, of course, nylon nylon twine wrapped around the trunk. Once that's buried for a couple of years, then that just curdles the tree altogether. There's no hope at that point. When you called onto a site, and I've been called onto many sites where they say, "Can you come and look at our trees? You know, our outer perimeter of trees are dying, and we can't figure it out." And I already have it in my head. I know what's wrong with it. You know that there. <laughs> Five years, the cage was left on, the burlap was left on, the ties were left on, the tree is, is on its way downhill. Sure enough, a whole yeah. row of white pine, all of them still had their cages and their handle. The handles were turned down flat, but they were mm -hmm. still on, and the, and the mm -hmm. roping was still on, and the, and the burlap. So there, which, meant that they were which meant that they were probably six to eight inches too deep anyway, so the root collars are buried. <laughs> on top of all right. I have a question, Richard. Um, I, in my mind, I'm always, you know, and I've been in the business for my whole professional career, and I'm always, you know, I know the other tree companies in the Philadelphia region pretty well. None of them have a dedicated tree planting crew, uh, nor does our company. You know, we have a couple people that I think like to plant trees, and we, you know, but for us, or at least for me as an arborist, it's always kind of, uh, I'm guilty of, uh, of it just kind of being an afterthought. From a business standpoint, how, what would you recommend to a tree company? Say they have, you know, two or three tree crews and they might have a pest management program during the growing season. But for adding a tree planting crew, mm. any, any tips? Uh, I know that's a big question and probably worthy of a one day seminar, but. <laughs> I think if I had to, if I had to sort of sum that up quickly, which I guess I do, um, the best thing I would say is to, is to hire subcontract somebody that, that does it right. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, because if, if you think about on the business side of it, right, you, I forget who, who, who sort of coined this term, but you want to, you want to focus on your strengths. Yeah. And, you know, you stay away from the shiny stuff. Yes, it might be a good idea. But if your core is arbor culture, you know, you have a spray program and you're a great arborist company. And if you want to develop a crew that's just going to plant that does it properly, then that's a different story. But if you're going to have, you know, a couple of guys climbing that, you know, oh, so-and-so needs a tree put in. Can you go put a tree in? Then you're going to, that falls back into that sort of lowest common denominator yeah. because they're doing it. They're doing it sort of the only way they know, right. and that's getting off the truck and sticking it in the ground. So yeah. I would say probably the best thing would be would it would be for a tr for an arborist company to consult with a good landscape company that, that does tree planting properly. Well, I hope that I like an arborist that. wouldn't plan it wrong because they have to get certified, and planning is part of the process. So if they're yeah. getting certified, they better know how to plant a tree, even if they do know how to prune. Um, otherwise they shouldn't be in the position. Um, but I, I do agree with you there where you should have a dedicated crew to plant because the more you do something over and over again, the more proficient you become at it mm -hmm. and the uh, better results you'll have too. And you'll, you'll want to experiment a little bit more by maybe having a compost tea that you're going to be watering it with or maybe have a, a special trick, you know. Yeah, that's that's a good point because what I did in that statement I just made, um, I'm just thinking of a common arborist who's planting. I wasn't thinking of the new ISA, like you were mentioning, the new ISA standards say that you need to plant without the cage and whatnot. So, yeah, I guess if the ISA standards are, you know, getting better, 
um, and there's a standard that arborists have to keep to, then yes, absolutely. Then an arborist can certainly plant a tree the right way. That's a very good point. Yeah. Are you brewing any uh, compost tea or? No, we yeah. don't. We, yeah, we use, we use a, a pre-made, um, it's refrigerated material. I just, I never had the opportunity, always so busy trying to grow the business. Yeah. Uh, it, t- it takes a lot of time to get that right. And there are some, re- there's some really great people that do some awesome things with compost tea. But we, that's something I, I've never had the opportunity to stick to what you're good at, right? And making compost tea is not something I would be good at at the moment. So I stay away, I stay away from things that I'm not, I'm not clear on because I want to make sure that clients get a good product. You know, if I, if I can take something that's been pre-made, um, and there are a lot of, a lot of folks that make, you know, they call it mud in a jug or bugs in a jug and that aren't good compost teas that aren't biologically active once you, you know, once you get them because they're not done properly. But if it's a, if it's a, if it's made refrigerated and, and the biology has been sisted before it's been put into refrigeration and you wake it up and you put it in the tank with, with some, you know, with some food, um, you know, then you're okay, but you need to be really careful about what, about what you're getting. But That's there's some really, good. there's some really great people that do some stuff with compost. See, like Mike Colnut from Lincoln Landscapes up in, uh, I believe it's Essex County. I mean, he, he's, he's a, He's seen Chip Osborne speak eleven or twelve times, and he's like a <laughs> he's a wow. he's an Osborne he's an Osborne groupie, and he he looks at his tea under a microscope and like a lot of guys do, and you have to be that dedicated and committed to it to make it to do it right. So right. it, it takes it takes a lot of work. Or the other thing is, you can just mulch the leaves that you are cleaning up in the fall mm-hmm. and incorporate them into your into your plant beds and tree tree circles. I think that that'll be the next wave of uh, the generation of arborists and uh, enlightened landscapers coming up behind us is what Eve is suggesting is, uh, I don't even know what the term would be, but it would be, you know, building that active mulch circle around the uh, mature sugar maple on the property and right. just, you know, activate the microbes with uh, shredded leaves and quality partially decomposed manure and I don't know. You know, we'll do that with our airspace. We'll take a spot like that where a client is having some trouble. And one of the things we like to do too is, you know, like I think we mentioned earlier is one of the things we do is we use native plants in our, in our design work. Um, and so with that, I try to minimize the amount of lawn. So I walk onto a client's property and I look for areas like you're mentioning under sugar maple that might have some difficulty with the lawn growing yeah. and, you're, you know, constantly throwing grass seed in grassy, 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 and it's never, grass is never going to grow. So we'll take our air spade and we'll till up underneath that drip zone or if it's multiple trees under multiple drip zones and plant native understory plugs to recreate that understory and then stay off of it. Let the leaves fall on it, let them do their thing. And then, you know, then you don't have the compaction. The tree roots are doing what they're supposed to do. You're sort of recreating the the woods floor again where, you know, where the tree is going to be happiest growing. That movie, um, Kiss the Ground with Woody Harrelson, I, I highly recommend that. It's fun to watch it because it's uh, pretty easy to kind of transfer the things that the farmers are talking about uh, over to horticulture. Yeah, and yeah. the other piece, and I'm not going to pretend like I know what I'm talking about on this, but with climate change and the arrival of a climate crisis, our urban soils, metro soils, are taking a beating in ways we don't even understand yet. I mean, when we're not getting uh, freezing and thawing, when we're not getting regular snow through the winter months, that changes soil chemistry. And I know we're going to start hearing more about it 
in the next decade of how it stresses uh, soils out when they don't get to uh, rejuvenate them, themselves in the way that they've evolved with long cold winters, ample snow, and opportunity to start the spring moist rather than parched from winter dryness. There is, um, there is some research going on at Penn. I sit on their tree committee down at University of Pennsylvania. And the, um, the National Forest Association and local people um, on campus are doing leaf studies and using leaves as mulch, different types of leaves as mulch. And they're, they're looking to see what kind of microbes grow there, but they're also looking at, you know, little arthropods, things like that, to provide a, um, a better aeration for the soil. There is research being done on that. And um, I think that there is going to be a lot to come down the line. We just have to wait for it. But I think we're going to find out that we really don't know anything about soil. We really don't. Considering that we've been here for how many millennia, uh, we really don't as humans know a lot about the soil. And one of my colleagues up in uh, Alaska who wrote Teeming with Microbes done a really great job of, of bringing that to the forefront. But again, we don't know a lot about soil and Jeff's been just scratching the surface of it. And he's, he's a great one to, to read his books and, and to uh, chat with him and, and hear what he has to say because he's always with the researchers and, and looking at those kind of things. Yeah, that, going back to my early, early sort of studies about this, Saving with Microbes was one of the books that sort of set me on my path also. Hmm. Yeah, that's a that's a great book. It uh, also has a couple other ones now too. So yeah, Timmy with Timmy with nutrients and yeah, and, yeah. I, I was in the bookstore the other day to see if my book was on the shelf, and there mine was right next to Jeff's, and I was really happy. <laughs> <laughs> nice, very good. We we haven't asked this of the last guest that we had, but one, um, how do you encourage your clients to plant trees? And hmm. number two. What are some of your favorite trees that you recommend or you love having on your own property? Okay. Well, white oak is my is probably one of my go-to favorite trees, but it's hard to pick just one. I mean, with that said, let's I, I'll go with the white oak. And then as far as our, the way we speak to our clients about planting trees, it's a lot of the education that we, we discuss with our clients is, you know, we're not only just planting trees or shrubs for that matter, um, just for their aesthetic value, right? We're planting them because we know from the work of Doug Talmy that if we plant an oak tree that we're going to get, you know, 500 plus caterpillars drawn to that oak tree that are going to benefit birds, the bird population. So, you know, it's, it, it's the education just not just about how a tree looks, how it's going to perform ecologically in the landscape and what kind of service is that tree giving back to us? Yes, it's oxygen. Yes, it's filtering water. But there's a whole nother layer, like you talked about Jeff, you know, Lowenfels in his book and how little we know about soil. There's another layer that, in, especially with landscape, that most folks don't pay attention to. And that is what is that ecology provide? What is that the plant providing for the ecology of the property? How are those plant communities starting to intermingle and work together? So the education and talking to clients about trees, it's about all those things we mentioned, but now predominantly it's about what that tree is going to give back to the ecology. When we do some of our designs, we look at, as far as perennials too, like solidagos and asters. I mean, they're great for, for calling in pollinators and calling in caterpillars and, you know, feeding ecology so that that, eco that local ecology is growing. Um, and it, it really now for us, it's, it's gotten to that point where 
you know, we focus on two things. We focus on soil biology and we focus on the ecology of the plant that we're installing into that landscape. And that's what we impart to our clients. That's awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, Richard. We're really happy that you could be on the Plant a Trillion Trees podcast. Thank uh, you. Any parting words of wisdom besides what you already just spouted? <laughs> um, well, I mean, one of the things our company is looking for, and we try, we try to be forward thinking um, as per our 2005 transition. You know, we're just trying to do things more environmentally friendly. Uh, we're trying to incorporate electric la a landscape team uh, to do our maintenance. Um, we're, we're thinking about getting a vehicle with solar panels on top so we can have a, a self-contained electric uh, maintenance unit. You know, things that things like that. We're always just sort of looking forward and trying to do things better, more envi more environmentally friendly. And if anybody wants to find out more about us, obviously our website, uh, they can go to that, McCoyFineGardens.com, and we're Facebook and Instagram at McCoy Horticulture. Did you uh, order your uh, Rivian electric pickup truck yet, Richard? <laughs> have not. Have not. Not yet. I bet you're going to be one of the first in New Jersey to own one. Well, listen, I mean, the thing we found out with electric, electronic equipment is it's much more expensive than, than the combustible counterpart. Oh, so yeah. it, it depends upon how business goes, I guess, to find out whether we're one of the first to have one of those trucks. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, we wish you the best. And I have to say, I learned a lot. It's, it's been great to speak with a, another uh, NOPA person. I, I don't have too many people like you down my way, uh, but it's good to know that there's uh, people out there that are so devoted and passionate about what they do. My, my pleasure. Feel free to reach out anytime. I enjoyed it as well. Thanks. Excellent. Bye-bye. Thank you so Thanks, much. Bye-bye. Thank <laughs> you.